Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast, where we bring together the best medical minds, thought leaders, scientists, patients, and caregivers to inform and inspire the spondylitis community. I'm your host, Jill Miller, living my best spa life, knowing that how we meet today has the power to change everything going forward. Hi, and welcome to SpondyCast. Today, our guest is Dr. Jana Baldwin Lomax. Got it. She is a doctor of psychology, a licensed clinical psychologist in Colorado. She had received her bachelor's degree in psychology from Miami of Ohio and her master's and doctoral degrees in clinical psychology from the Illinois School of Professional Psychology. She completed her pre-doctoral internship at Denver Health and postdoctoral training at the University of Colorado Cancer Center Blood and Marrow Transplant Program. She specializes in health psychology and focuses on working with adults facing chronic or life-limiting diseases, their loved ones, and their healthcare providers. She is extremely passionate about this, I think. And um, I paused because it, as I was reading your welcome, first of all, welcome to SpongeCast. And thank, thank you, you for coming. I'm, um, I'm honored and thrilled to be here. I'm excited to talk with you. Yeah, I am too. And I, I'll say I got uh, flipped up in your in your uh, your bio because I I grew up in Ohio and now I live in Chicago. So I and I know several people who came through the <laughs> clinical psychology or the Illinois School of Professional Psychology. So oh, um, yeah, so small world indeed. Uh, and I also I was sharing with you, I guess, in the green room that uh, you landed here. Uh, You've done a lot of work, I think, with the spondylitis community and sort of talking with people uh, who suffer or live with this disease. And I had the privilege of listening to you in 2018 in Denver. And I mentioned to you that like you changed my trajectory and the way I thought about the disease. Uh, and one of the things you focused on, and we'll dig into like 20 minutes in probably, um, but I would. what I loved so much is the way you talked about these cycles of like chronic and acute within a disease um, and how to ensure that the chronic does, that the, the acute does not become the chronic in your life. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life significantly. So um, let's get rolling. Uh, one of the things you have used, I've heard, is uh, a surfboard analogy about learning to ride the waves with a condition or similar to sailing or kayaking. And like, there's different flags for different skill levels when you're out on the water. Um, so let's talk, cause all of that is focused around stress from a psychological standpoint, right? Right, right. What is stress? Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanna first say, I feel like we often um, give stress a bad rap. It's not yeah. always a bad thing. Stress is, in a very simplistic term is any um, kind of ex not even extreme. It's any alteration from norm. And so stress can in fact be very beneficial. It can help us perform better. It can help us engage more in our lives if we are in a, you know, experiencing a stress that is manageable. But often when we're talking about stress, we're talking about 
stress that feels overwhelming or beyond our ability to manage it. And so when we, you know, refer to the, to this, um, these metaphors around, um, you know, riding the waves of stress, often we're talking about something that feels out of our control, such as the ocean, such yes. as the sea. And that can sort of represent not only an illness, but other things in our lives, you know, the environment, politics, other things in our lives that we may not feel like we have ultimate control over but what we do have within ourselves is our ability to learn how to manage that and you know so to speak ride those waves and that surfboard can be all sorts of things it can be internal tools that we have but the surfboard can also represent extensions of our abilities to to manage such as our communities such as a good diet so i i want to think of the surfboard as you know, as an extension of our ability to cope with the stress that is represented by that ocean. And in, in a chronic disease is the primary thing that throws stress. I, I call it kind of like from like into the red zone. Uh, Great. Is it mm -hmm. our inability to control what's going on? It depends. It's complicated. Um, you know, the, the wave or the red zone could feel like a flare, a new pain that you hadn't experienced before. So maybe someone with spondylitis like yourself has learned to manage some of the pains, a different, you know, your lower back, like you've learned some tools around that, but all of a sudden there's a new discomfort. And so that flips you into the red zone. And so it is a, it's like a, a new thing you're learning and that feels overwhelming. So that is, you know, often when we're thinking about the red zone, what we're talking about is that we don't feel in that moment or in this acute state, like we have the tools to navigate that. Um, and it can be other things. So it, you know, the red zone may be caused by, you know, an stress in a family member or a financial situation. And then that can create then another crashing wave, which is a flare up of the illness. So you may be struggling with a few waves feeling like they're coming at you in quick succession. Or they come from behind and just flip over your... <laughs> yeah. so, so the goal is to stay on the surfboard, but that is merely an aspiration and not something that we can all do all the time. So when you differentiate stress as good and bad, does mm -hmm. this go like fight or flight? Is that the... In some ways, I think what I what I try to encourage people to think about is that when we have stress to our system, it doesn't always have to be a bad thing. We can look at it as an opportunity for growth. Mm -hmm. We don't want a silver lining, an illness, a chronic condition. No one would choose that. Like, oh, I needed this to learn X. That I, I really struggle. I bristle at these ideas of everything happens for a reason or I needed this experience in order to you know, X. But what we can do is we can develop resilience in the face of hardship. So it still is hardship, but developing tools or resilience around that is um, how we navigate stress. And so when you ask around fight or flight, fight or flight is our system, our body and brains long wired, it's in our DNA um, to, for survival. And so that's what we do in the face of a perceived threat to our survival. 
Okay. Um, and as we've evolved, our survival is not typically threatened by a saber-toothed tiger or a bear when these when this um, default mode came into place. But our threats now in our in our brain, a threat to our ego or I, our identity can feel equally as terrifying as what we used to think of in terms of a threat to our true survival. And so we do go into when we're feeling threatened or we perceive an environmental stimuli as threatening, whether, you know, whether it is or not, it's that perception of threat. Um, we can go into fight, flight, or freeze is now something we recognize as another. Um, so flight is to kind of get out of there. Fight is to aggress and to freeze is to numb is to feel nothing um, okay. and to stop. And a lot more, I mean, this is an evolution of the, of a, you know, of a concept that I feel like is more relevant for a lot of people as we are understanding trauma responses. I see yeah, things a lot. And I do, we, we learn, we can learn, maybe I'm wrong, but we can learn how we respond to certain yes. stressors. Yes. And I remember in Denver, you said something, you said, if it all happens at once and we're not responding properly, life can turn into a shit show. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought that, is, like me. that was the word of the year in 2020, um, maybe oh, 20 well, um, ever. Yeah. Right. But yeah. it's how we respond at what comes at us and, and learning from that. I, I know just my own experience, I somehow became, I don't know what, just aware enough that when I was going down a, a bad road in some areas, I'd go, Ooh, I'm going to hit the cliff. Yeah. And now I like pull back. Right. And I'll know I'll be pushing myself to the red zone, red zone, red zone of whatever it is. And I'll start to see it. I'll go like, Oh, I remember this from last time. And it was not good. Ding, ding, ding. That's Almost brilliant. Though. Or like sticking your finger in the. Yeah. Yeah. So that's is that how we learn? We learn. I mean, is that that's how we learn at the as, at the basic, you know, basis is you know what is the outcome of this behavior. But as we get older and wiser, and as time goes on, it can be we can start to realize that some of the patterns and responses that we developed as younger people that were really really useful then are not serving us in the same way now. But we may fall into that default mode of responding and and you just described something very beautifully in that you at some point can gain awareness that oh i've done this before and this has not been helpful in the way that i thought it would but let me find out what it is about this pattern of behavior what it's attempting to do for me in service of either comfort or survival or love or acceptance and so these behaviors that we develop early on start to play out in our adulthood in ways that maybe maybe they're not achieving what they used to but it's not as, as though we want to pathologize them or say oh i want to get rid of that behavior what can be really helpful is getting curious about how it got there why is it that when this happens i do this and i'm not getting the outcome that i'm desiring right um, and is yeah. right and like in the context of like spondylitis i've mm -hmm. been there where it's like I feel awful. I'm in a flare. I'm going to pull the covers over my head for a day. Yeah. And then it becomes a second day or a third day. And, and I want to talk about coping. So I don't want to get too far off. Mm -hmm. uh, 
because I think this coping is like the one thing when we get the coping mechanism and you figure it out, you're like, yes, that works. That's like the tool in the toolbox that you need. Um, And and I want to pause and say you point out something really interesting. Uh, Also, when we were in Denver, uh, you talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs in terms of of coping. And one of the most interesting things I heard you say, and um, to be fair, you probably don't remember it because I rewatched it the other night, but um, at the basis of it are physiological needs, right? Like food, clothing, shelter, safety. Mm -hmm. None of us can cope without those basic things. That's right. right. Those come first. So yep. None of us can cope. We can't grow. We don't find love and belonging. Like those things don't happen. So from a, and probably in the trauma bucket, right? Like those things have to be met before we can start to cope. So I think mm-hmm. the basis mm-hmm. is important for people to seek out if they can access ways to meet those basic needs first, instead of trying to spin and spin and spin. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I know. Yeah, to to encourage someone, for example, to meditate before they're sleeping or eating a healthy diet is a really poor use of their time and energy. You know, they sleep is essential. A good diet is essential, and in order to achieve both of those things, you have to have a you know a, a roof over your head and the ability to not to truly be you know relatively safe but if you are first feeling unsafe and unable to find secure housing then it's really unrealistic and frankly not possible in many cases to then move on to the next levels of kind of self-actualization which is what maslow's hierarchy of need lands at ultimately um so yes i was you know as i was preparing and thinking about coping i was also thinking it's really important that people first recognize that there are some basic needs that have to be met and that there are a lot of folks that we are living amongst that don't have those basic needs met and to expect that they're going to cope through you know getting meditation or exercise or yoga or trying this organic smoothie you know is really an unrealistic expectation that having some of those basic needs are is likely to help them manage their illness because they're managing their stress level. Right. Your survival. Survival. You're managing survival. Yeah. And then, yeah. yeah. I think yeah. of it often too. We just did a an episode on workplace when you have a chronic disease. And like, if you're not at a place where those basic needs are being, like if you've not exceeded physiological needs, how, how do you show up at work as a healthy oh human? Oh my God. Right? right. right. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's, I could go down that rabbit hole for an hour, but let's talk about <laughs> so many. <laughs> So yes. coping is, can be positive and negative, but at the end right. of the day, do I remember correctly? You talk about it has to be authentic in how you cope. I mean, I think, yes, ultimately it has to feel right for you. And, you know, there are lots of lists out there if you google um you know coping with chronic illness and they'll list off a bunch of things but i think those those may not be right for any individual we are all such different people and i i want to kind of roll back to our conversation a bit about stress in that this links directly to how we cope some people being alone can be very stressful 
for other people, being around a lot of people can be very stressful. So when we say cope, you know, develop a network of people. Well, some people may just have way too many people in their business and they need fewer. Others may need more of a connection. So it's really hard to give a broad rush around how an individual is best going to cope or adapt to their illness before they first have a better sense around what causes them stress. Um, and so, you know, as you referred to, what causes us stress is so different. I, I'm picturing the same slide that you are, that there are lots of different manifestations of stress. They can be cognitive and feeling distracted or feeling lost in thought. They can be social in that you pull away from people or you really need people. Um, it can be behavioral. Some people numb out when they're stressed through substances. Um, other people may exercise maybe to excess when they're stressed. And so it's really around finding out what, um, getting clear with yourself as you have, Jill, it sounds like, around what are my patterns? What are healthy coping and when does it tip into maladaptive or more kind of a compulsive behavior that's not actually serving me? And that happens, I think, a lot when people are managing oh, chronic illness. I when was you there find something, point. you yeah. think, yeah, when you think it's yeah. going to work, and then it becomes everything and then you obsess and and become so tied to it that if it alters or you know if it if you don't have some flexibility around realizing that those waves are going to come that surfboard may take all different shapes and sizes yeah um yeah if you'd so have I, asked I me 10 years ago I, I let every wave knock me over and now like on my wall here in the office there's the quote it says they whispered to her, you cannot withstand the storm. And she said, oh, but I am the storm. <laughs> oh, so like, that's the way, but, but it took many years and many failures, right? To pick it back up. Um, and I, I hope that like, it's really hard, right? There's a lot of, and when you talk oh. about authenticity, it's that I used to call myself the queen of fine. People would say, how are you? Like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Until yeah. I was so bad, I couldn't get out of bed. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and you and you wanted to believe you were fine. You wanted to believe that. Sure. And you weren't sure how to use the tools of kind of expanding on that statement of, you know, fine can have its own variations too. Right. There's going to be ups and downs. And as you go through life, those ups and downs become relevant to the prior, you know, related to the prior ups and downs. So yeah. You, become more capable in some ways of handling harder things, but maybe are more depleted because of the demands of just purely being human. Yeah. And when you talk about uh, coping, like I'm sure that, right, we're all, we all have, whether or not we have a wide network or a small network, we all have relationships that are important that we have to manage as part Absolutely. of a chronic disease. And mm -hmm. uh, I was listening to, Brene Brown the other the other night, uh, Atlas of the Heart. And I don't know if you've listened to the, or read it, uh, but she- Not that one yet, but I do love a lot. Yeah, it's good. Stuff. And she talks in it about, or maybe it was like an Instagram reel, I can't remember, but it was a Brene Brown. And I'm doing both at the same time, probably. <laughs> but she talks about, uh, sometimes she comes home and she's got a father who's not well. She comes home and says to her husband, I only have 20% to give today. And he says, well, I've got, I've got you on the other 80. And they have a rule in their house, which I thought would be awesome to institute in many relationships. In fact, I talked to one of my 
employees about this the other day and said, maybe we should do this, is when they don't add up to 100%, it immediately triggers them sitting down for 10 minutes, figuring out how they're going to weather it. And they have to come up with a plan so that they're kind to each other and they don't hurt each other. And I was like, wow, if we all did that in our relationships and when we're stressed, right? Like when we're, cause we, I've been there. I think probably anyone listening has been there where you are miserable and you don't have, you can't give 50% to the relationship, no matter who it is, oh even goodness. if it's your child. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. That's beautiful. And I wish we could wear that dial on our forehead that right? <laughs> of how much, Oh, yeah, wouldn't that be awesome? Empty your tank is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For your spoons, there's the, for spondies, there's the spoon thing where they say, like, uh -huh. I've got so many spoons every day. When I run out, I have to go yep. into the drawer, you know, and borrow them from tomorrow. Um, there you go. Yeah. But in terms of coping, so there are positive coping mechanisms. So, like, oh, yeah. give me Absolutely. top five. Like that. I would say, yeah, I, you know, I think some of the, no matter what your circumstances are, um, finding a gratitude practice is a really helpful coping strategy because no matter what is burning around you, having a moment to be grateful, even for the fact that you breathed that you in that moment can be so helpful for building resilience in the face of adversity. So, you know, I was thinking in anticipation of this because I really struggle with these broad brush st statements around like, this is the tool for everybody. Cause I just, in my 25 years of practice have not found a tool that works for everybody. But I think being able to have a moment of gratefulness, of gratitude can just bring, it, it is also a mindful practice. And I think mindfulness is not meditation. Mindfulness is pulling ourselves into the moment, um, recognizing that our moments and our experiences are constantly shifting. And if we're willing to accept the constant shift, the waves, then we get less married to any particular outcome. And I think what happens in chronic illness, as it happens with anybody that's in an acute situation, is feeling like that's never going to change. Right. And desperately focusing on wanting something that feels unattainable. But if you stop in the moment and recognize this fluctuation, be willing to notice the fluctuation rather than forcing ourselves into believing something um, is happening or won't ever change. I mean, that's often where we get stuck. That, I mean, those two mindful moments and gratitude, I feel like are incredibly powerful, whether we call it a coping or just a lifestyle practice of kind of just being human. Yeah, you wouldn't be the first person to say that on here. <laughs> it's <laughs> well, really interesting. Maybe a reason. Uh, yeah, and yeah. in the coping, so gratitude is active coping. Mm-hmm. And passive mm -hmm. would be what kind of coping? Well, I mean, passive coping is not something necessarily that we want people to do. I mean, I think any act of coping is typically pretty, um, I mean, passive coping is just sort of our sympathetic nervous system. It's adjusting constantly, seeking homeostasis. So that's, that's how I understand passive coping. I think other active coping strategies are um, 
thinking about ways of articulating yourself. I mean, I, you know, what you just described with regard to Brene Brown, how do you express what's happening for you in a way that feels honest and authentic without it necessarily expecting something from others? So that's something I've learned a lot through my work with chronic yeah. illness is a lot of the social, when you say managing relationships, it's often a sense of disappointment around how other people respond. But what I am, am, you know, have learned over time is that it really is about how do you feel good about what you're putting out there, that that feels authentic and real, and then hoping that you get what you want back, but accepting that that may, that other people also have limitations, that the people in your life are also carrying burdens. Because yeah. the minute we expect other people to fill our cup is when we're likely to be disappointed. But if we can fill our own cup first, as much as possible, um, then we're more likely to find connection through our communities. But when we really are needing things from people for them to fill, it, that's when we tend to get disappointed. That doesn't mean, you know, in the case of the 80-20 that you just described in Brene Brown's um, relationship that doesn't mean you don't get help from other people but it's an agreement it's a consent on both people's yeah. both participants part that they are going to engage in that and there's a lot of assumptions that are made when we're in positions of feeling vulnerable or when we're feeling less than we make assumptions about how people are interpreting us and yes. if we can get away from that get away from that interpretation or assumption making and just get clearer about articulating what's happening for us so that people can understand it a little bit more and then being clear, like, this is what I would like from you. And I know maybe you can't offer that, but I want to put it out there. This is what I'm hoping. Yeah. And you know, when I, uh, when you're talking about the articulation, so one of the things that I have, and I think too, when, when this is a hack, one of those hacks we talked about, um, <clears throat> how do you hack this disease? So I've started to learn uh, in just general life, but particularly when I've had like a really long day, I've got kind of the brain fog. I'm trying to articulate something that's going on and it might be articulating it to another human being uh, about what I need. I have found the hack of almost like journaling to chat GPT and asking it to help organize my thoughts and provide an artic a better articulation of what I'm saying that's more succinct. And it has been, yeah, it's because I've always got a thousand things in my head. When the AS takes over, you get brain fog. I'm sure yeah. I would go for it. I'd have ADHD diagnosis. I have no <laughs> doubt. Um, and I, it has served me well most of my life. But um, but surely that's one of the, the thought I, I thought like, because it is hard to articulate it. And yeah. then the assumptions piece around relationships is also very hard to deal with. Uh, yes. And yeah, I, I think the articulation is one of the hardest things for any of us. I agree with you totally. And what a brilliant hack you've stumbled upon. I'm going to take that into my repertoire. Thank you so much. You. It's awesome. <laughs> I just always leave names out. I remake names yeah. so the chat GPT yeah. isn't recording whatever's going on in my yeah. life. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a brilliant hack. And I, yes, I was, as I was, you know, 
thinking about articulation, my mind was thinking also like drafting an email or drafting a note or just kind of getting your thoughts out of your brain onto something else so that you can get to them at a later time when they are clearer to you or when the circumstance necessitates. But I, you know, I, I have experienced a lot with people with chronic illness that they're making assumptions about how other people feel about them. Often this feeling of I'm too much of a burden, I can't ask, I don't want to ask for this, I'm afraid that they think X, Y, and Z of me. And often I, you know, remind them that they're probably not thinking about you as much as you think they are. We tend to be, you know, <laughs> the, we're the, you know, the main people in our own movies, all of us are the main characters in our own internal movies. And so the fact that you think that someone's making a judgment about you may be an unhelpful thing to be assuming about other people yeah. and just ask, you know, ask the question. And the worst thing that can happen is the way that you're drafting it up in your mind. So you're already believing that this reality is there and that may not actually be the reality. Right. And yeah, you're pointing to one of my favorite books, which is the four agreements. Oh yes. Oh my gosh. I haven't read that in a while. Oh, Mm -hmm. I read it every year. It's probably smart. It's like a three hours or less on audible. And it's for, for the people listening who don't know, it's a great book on, sort of letting go of being the perception of the perception of yourself, which is mm-hmm. also one of those mind blowing moments. I might've also had that in 2018, not from you, but uh, right. But one of them is don't make assumptions and don't take things personally because what people do is a reflection of themselves, not of you. Yes. And do your best every day um, because your best varies from day to day. Uh, That's right. so- start over. And then the the one I always forget is the very first one, but it's uh, speak with integrity, right? Like mm-hmm. use your voice in the direction of truth and love. Those are- Man, thank you for the reminder. It has been years since I've read that. I can picture it right now on my bookshelf and I'm totally going to reread it because it is so relevant for yeah. life. It's, yeah. It is. We give it to the every new employee. Well, we have, we have our four agreements. Like that's part of the company where I am at. So we give it to everyone. And it's, to me, it, it's changed it again. I'm, I may be like overboard on all the like life changing stuff. Maybe, maybe there's something underneath that all. Um, but again, I keep trying to hack like, right. Like on a journey of better um, and, and growth and learning. Um, so let's talk about some of the like, I don't want to talk about negative stuff too much in terms of right. coping mechanisms, but maybe touch, mm-hmm. like, should we touch on that? And like maybe some, some strategies like breathing, or we talked about uh, meditation, gratitude, mindfulness. Gratitude, yeah. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I mean, we cope and adjust to our environment as it comes at us. And some of those things may not be helpful in the moment, but man, they may have been 20 years ago, 30 years ago, 50 years ago. And so I, you know, I, again, want to encourage people to get curious about why they, why they choose certain ways of reacting or coping um, to, to stress rather than saying, oh, that's negative. I want people to get a little bit more curious and compassionate toward themselves about why they react in certain ways. When we're under a tremendous amount of stress and maybe we have not 
been raised in an environment or been in an environment where we have the wherewithal or capacity to develop good or healthy coping strategies, some people turn to substances. That substance could be sugar. That substance could be tobacco. That substance could be, you know, marijuana or alcohol, could be pain medications. So, you know, recognizing that that is a coping mechanism with due to a stressor on the system. And if we can get compassionate rather than judgmental about people, you know, going the path of numbing out an overwhelming feeling and trying to get curious about how they got to that place, that that was the tool in their toolkit. Um, And can they develop others? Can they, because what has happened in our society is we have gotten so um, judgmental and pathologizing around substance abuse and addiction. And it has been so isolating for people that are in that place that they, and there's so much shame around it that they, it just continues to feed on itself because shame is one of our most uncomfortable human emotions. Um, And so if people can, all of us can get loving and compassionate about that that substance is a tool for managing overwhelming feelings. Um, It's not because someone just liked it so much that they kept doing it. That's not typically what it's about. It's usually that there is some really uncomfortable underlying human experience that that substance is helping them manage. Um, And so I think it's just really essential that no matter what our you know, maybe shameful coping mechanism is that we get curious about it rather than get judgmental about it. Um, And if we can get, you know, loving toward ourselves that we got to this place doing the best we possibly could with the information and the tools we had at the time, but those tools are no longer serving us in the ways that they initially were. Now they're causing harm. Now they're causing dysfunction or disengagement from life. Um, And so that's... I think that's really an important shift um, for us as we think about coping that maybe doesn't feel as healthy or helpful is that it, it got in that place because it was really right. effective. Yeah, that's a very compassionate take on uh, substance abuse or addiction or poor coping. I So typically if you're with a patient Okay. Do you want, I, I have a couple of questions that I probably should ask for our audience, but do you, sure. uh, any other thoughts on coping? Um, I mean, I could say lots of things, okay. but go I, go, get, get, yeah. Get, okay. Get so what I want to say is like what we just went through here kind of defines what a health psychologist does, right? Oh, um, in some ways. Yeah. I mean, I think I, that, I love that question. Um, at the beginning. And I would say what we've done here, I wouldn't say is necessarily the definition of a health psychologist. In a, There are additional parts. Um, do you want to hear more or should we just? Yeah, like this is, but okay. I, I would love to know as people are looking for different, I don't want to call you a tool, but as people are I'm looking a, for different... I'm a tool in the toolkit. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so I, uh, yeah. So if people are looking for ways to improve outcomes, what do they need to know about yes. a health psychologist versus? Yes. So, yeah, if you're someone that is um, realizing that, you know, your community, all the tools in your toolkit are doing great service 
and you want to learn something more from an expert um, that, you know, that Dr. Google and all those things are not giving you the information necessarily that you need, then, and, and the, the major um, trigger for the stress in your life is a medical condition. Then going to see someone who specializes in medical psychology or health psychology is a great um, direction because those folks are trained. So a health psychologist, by definition, has been trained in medical settings, ha has a deeper understanding of um, the, the biopsychosocial interaction um, in someone's life than a general psychologist who is trained more in the area of um, mental health, um, psychiatric illness, and or substance abuse. Um, and so those of us that have been trained in medical settings we feel very comfortable interfacing and interacting with your medical team so that we don't see what's happening for you in a silo. We recognize that there is a whole systemic um, impact happening. And so um, other mental health providers also look at systems, but those of us that have been trained in a medical psychology setting or health psychology setting um, ha happen to have a bit more knowledge of the body and its interactions with with the brain um, and with mood. And so if someone is dealing with spondylitis or another chronic illness, going to see a health psychologist may be helpful because that person is going to um, maybe be an added team member to their health team. But none of it happens in a in a silo, you know, recognizing that that uh, any mental health provider, I, as I am, even as a health psychologist, I'm a mental health provider, should be asking you about sleep, about diet, about relationships, about coping strategies that you've used in the past, and about trauma. There's a lot that we know that, you know, trauma can have an impact on the default mode network of our brain, sort of how we passively interpret our environment. And if you have early life trauma or chronic trauma, then you're more likely to be in an elevated state of anxiety or um, or interpreting more threat in your environment. So that also brings me to a question, uh, which is uh, chronic stress on a chronic condition and what that can do to us in the long term from a health perspective. Yes. So yeah, it's, it's bi-directional. It goes both directions. So having a chronic illness can be stressful on a system. And having external stressors can, of course, cause increased inflammation in the body, which then can maybe lead to more frequent flares or flares of greater intensity. The research out there, though, is complicated. There, it's not A to B. You know, it, we can't say because I, you know, experienced a lot of stress as a child, I've developed this illness or this illness is of greater severity. Um, there, there really is not a one-to-one -one correlation. They've been, you know, it, it's a hard thing to study, um, but there are certainly linkages that when there is increased stress on someone's system or more stressful life events, and there are measures of this, that they um, can have greater inflammation in their body. And we know greater inflammation in the body, which is increased um, cortisol, um, can increase 
uh, likelihood for other conditions or increase the, you know, the severity of some conditions, such as spondylitis, spondylitis. That is one of the conditions that can experience flares. But the, it's not it's not a truism. It does, you know, it, that's why I say it's bidirectional. Merely having this illness or this diagnosis can then cause stress on the system and then cause this sort of looping experience. So that's why it's important to develop ways of knowing how you experience, how you manifest stress, learning, oh, this is, ah, yes, on my thermometer of stress, I'm going into the red zone, I see it. What is it that led to this? And then finding some tools for either managing whatever it is that causes that increase or, de you know, or finding ways of having less of that happening. But sometimes we don't have that. You know, if someone's experiencing financial stress, they're not gonna win the lottery. So how do you learn to manage that financial stress. It may be that you don't focus on it all the time or that you you know, do your financial analysis one day of the week or pay your bills only one day of the week so that you're not constantly feeling that flood of overwhelm. Right. We've all been there at some point with something. So yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> don't get me on the soapbox of capitalistic society and how toxic that is. This has been amazing. Like I, I want to do this again soon. Uh, happy, happy to. I love it too. It's, I realize I've got lots to say about lots of things. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, and it's. I think it's also we realize we're not alone in some of these thoughts, right? Like, or some of these, like, right. I'm here. I want better. And do you? One final question I'll ask is. Uh, in working with people, do you find that when they shift from maybe passive coping to actively coping healthy, that they're, they do have better outcomes or what is, maybe it's empirical, maybe it's not. Uh, <laughs> but what is your experience when people start to maybe accept, or I don't know the best way to put it. So maybe you can. Yeah. I, I, I mean, I'm constantly inspired by the aha moments that I, could not have predicted, you know, that there's just a statement that someone makes or a reflection that I may offer that they feel empowered. That's really ultimately what I'm, you know, resilience and empowerment is what I'm hoping for, for anyone that I work with and anyone in my life is yeah. that, you know, we can't control the tides as they roll in. We don't know if, you know, in the face of spondylitis, we develop another illness or someone we love and depend on does. So it's right. really about digging deep and recognizing that, you know, being human is messy and it is imperfect. And as, as we get softened with ourselves and get loving toward ourselves, I just, you know, whether that, I think it changes outcomes because it changes us. You know, I can't say that I'm necessarily able to say that that you know, by finding self-compassion and a sense of resilience that, you know, their illness has less frequent flares because that would be a, you know, a, a beautiful study to try to design. But in yeah. my personal work of seeing people gain, I, I'm, I'm doing this sort of breathing and relaxing because when you see someone soften to themselves, it can have such a beautiful impact on not only their lived experience within their own body this vessel that we have for a short time 
but the compassion they have for other people and other people's burden. Um, and then, you know, there's just, a, just more, more love to go around. Um, and so I, I mean, that's, that is what I see change, whether it's cancer, whether it's spondylitis or whether it's, um, you know, other autoimmune conditions that we treat in this practice that when we help somebody see themselves as an imperfect human amongst many others and not so alone, but that you have some power in that, just recognizing that, um, it, it really does shift someone's just ability to, to live this existence. Yeah, maybe we should try to create a magic wand that makes that happen. <laughs> I would love that, but I I think we'd miss the point. Yeah, I think <laughs> so too. I think so too. And you talk about those moments, and there's two that that hit me when you said that. One is, um, one was a t-shirt, but the other was, oh. uh, the t-shirt was "Don't trip over what's behind you." And oh, yes, that I, I love that. I do too. Like I want a trademark. I love it. Love it. That's I amazing. I feel guilty stealing it from the guy whose t-shirt it was on. <laughs> And the other one is like the only thing in life that's for certain is that everything is temporary. That's right. That's and right. I, that when that was mind blowing to me. So, but I, I, I yeah, I think yeah. you're right. And I love the idea that you, in your own personal work, you see more love coming out of the people you work with. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and ultimately it's about love for ourselves. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, that is a nice way to land it. Oh my goodness. Wow. So I did not think this was the direction it was going to go. I didn't either. See, um, there's never a dull moment here on Spondycast. Uh, oh my gosh. I'm very inspired. I, I've, yeah, I've uh, done a few by phone, but it's fun to be able to, to see you and interact. So yeah, this, this was great. great. Thank you yeah. so much for joining us and uh, oh, my yeah, pleasure. We'll have to do it again. I, I really appreciate it. I'd be happy to. It was great. I've got so many more things I had jotted down to cover. So we've got, we could do a, a, oh, good. a version yeah. two. <laughs> all right. Perfect. Um, I think we're all set. We will talk to you soon. Okay. Spondycast was made possible by donations from the Spondylitis Association of America's individual members and our show's corporate sponsor, AbbVie. Since our founding in 1983, the Spondylitis Association of America has been the face, voice, and leading nationwide nonprofit, educating, empowering, and advocating for people living with spondyloarthritis. Through our extensive work with patients, the medical community, and partners, we provide information and resources to help people impacted by the disease live better lives and champion research to find a cure.